Chapter twenty two of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter twenty two The Driver of an Arabia. Thank God! cried Biddy, as a slim figure in a loose white robe framed itself in the doorway. With a sob, Mabel ran toward them, both hands held out, and in an instant she was being hugged and kissed and cooed over. "'You've found me! You've come!' she cried. "'I never dared think you would, when he rushed me away from a suet. He said he would keep me here all the rest of my life, to punish me for complaining to you.' "'But how did he know?' Monny asked. "'Did your sister-in-law tell him about the letter?' "'I don't think so, unless he has made her confess. It was like this. He was coming to his place here on business.' I felt so thankful. It seemed providential he should be away then, just when you were starting up the Nile. I was almost happy that morning, when suddenly he appeared again, and I was ordered to put on a habera and a yashmuk, and travel with him. Yina, the woman who acts as my maid, had to get ready in a hurry, too. The chief eunuch, a hateful, hypocritical wretch, followed. Some clothes have been sent to me since, but not many. At first I couldn't guess what had happened, and he was in such a fiendish temper I daren't ask questions. It wasn't till after we arrived that he explained. I'm sure he took pleasure in hurting me. He said that he left home early the morning he was going to Luxor, because he meant to stop and make a business call on the way to the depot. Otherwise he wouldn't have been able to rush home and fetch me as he did, and still be in time to catch his train after the warning. It was some dragoman you employed in Cairo, he told me, who had seen us getting off the Laconia, and who ran after his carriage in the street in Asuet. The wicked creature warned him that you were all there, and that he'd heard you say something which sounded as if there was a plot to get at me. Just at that minute, by the worst of luck, Mr. Sheridan passed. You know how foolish and cruel he was about Mr. Sheridan on the ship. Well, he hadn't forgotten, so he turned round and almost snatched me out of the house, rather than I should be left in a suet with him away. "'This is exactly what we thought must have happened,' exclaimed Monny. "'That beast better! And to think that I and Rachel wasted our time trying to convert him! How I wish I hadn't let Aunt Clara engage him at Alexandria! She thought he'd come from a man with her favorite name, Antony, but she wouldn't have insisted if I hadn't encouraged her. I feel as if this trouble were partly my fault.' and if I hadn't been thoughtless enough at Asuet to blurt out your husband's name—you're not to blame for anything, dearest, Biddy tried to comfort her. It was your unfailing resolve to help which has brought us here. You're both my good angels, said Mabel. Oh, it's heavenly to see you. But I can't understand why I'm allowed to, after all the threats and punishments. I'm afraid I shall be made to pay somehow. He loves to torture me, and he knows how. I believe he hates me, now he's begun to realize that I'd give anything to leave him, that I don't consider myself his wife. "'If he hates you, why isn't he willing to let you go?' Monny questioned her. "'Partly because he's very vain, and it would humiliate him. Partly because he has no son yet, only that horrid little brown girl, and he's set his heart on a boy who's to possess all the qualities and strength of the West. No, he won't let me go.' "'Well, you'll do it in spite of him, then,' said Monny eagerly. "'That's what we're here for.' we shall take you with us. You must say to your servants that we've invited you for a drive, and you've accepted. There's nothing in that to make them suspect. Lots of Turkish ladies go driving and motoring with European women in Cairo. And you can have that fat black man sit on the box seat, with, with our coachman, if it would make things easier, taking him to guard you. 
He can be hustled or bribed or something, when the right time comes to get rid of him, never fear. Oh, it's going to be a glorious adventure, and at the end of it you'll be free. Nobody could blame you, as the man has another wife. Mabella Hanem shook her head. You're splendid to plan this, but it's too late. It was too late from the moment that dragoman warned my husband. Why you've been allowed to come into the house and talk with me, I can't think, unless he is watching and listening through a hidden spy-hole. There's sure to be some secret reason in his head, anyhow, a reason that's for his good and not mine. And I shall not be able to get out if you do. If we do, echoed Biddy, a catch in her voice. She glanced furtively at Monny. What had we all been dreaming of when we let this beautiful girl run into danger? I know Biddy well enough to be sure that her thought was at that instant for Monny Gilder, not for Bridget O'Brien. But the fear in her heart was vague until the next answer Mabel made an answer that came almost with calmness, for Mabella Hanem's whole being was concentrated upon herself, and her own imbroglio. Everything else, everybody else, even those friends who were risking much to help her, were secondary considerations. I don't suppose any real harm will come to you. I don't see how he'd dare. And yet there may be something on foot. Three men had come to-day, one who might be a dragoman, and two Europeans. They came together. I saw them. And I haven't seen them go away. They're in the men's part of the house, the Selimlik. They must be with my husband. Perhaps there's only some business about the sugar-cane. But did you see the men distinctly? Biddy asked, in a changed tone. Yes, quite distinctly, for they glanced up at the window where I was peeping out. Of course they couldn't see me through the wooden lattice and the bougainvillea, but I had a good look at them. The dragomen seemed to have one blind eye. Oh, I hadn't thought of that before. Can it be the man who gave the warning? What were the Europeans like? Biddy questioned, without answering. Were they wearing light tweed knickerbockers with big checks? No, they were in dark clothes, not very noticeable. Had one a scar on his forehead? Why, yes, I believe he had. The eyes of Bridget and Monny met, but there was none of that deadly fear in the girls, which Biddy was trying to keep out of hers. Even now it was hardly fear for herself. It was nearly all for Monny, but Monny must not know— lest she should lose her nerve when it was needed most. That idea of Bridget's about Monny being mistaken for Esme O'Brien by members of the organization O'Brien betrayed had seemed foolish and far-fetched, although Esme was hidden from her father's enemies near Monaco, and it was at Monaco that Miss Gilder and Rachel Guest and Mrs. East had joined Bridget on the Laconia. I had laughed at the suggestion, and Biddy had been half ashamed to make it. But now, in this lonely house, where she and the girl had been unexpectedly welcomed, in this house where the master watched, entertaining three strange men, the thought did not appear quite so foolish, quite so far-fetched. Indeed, Biddy marveled why it had occurred to none of us that one of the three dangers to be run in rescuing Mabel might come through better, the same danger which had perhaps threatened in the house of the crocodile. Too late to think of this now. The fact remained that we had not thought of it when there was time. Not even Biddy had felt certain that there was a secret motive for taking the girls to the hashish den, or that Better had been guilty of anything worse than indiscretion. His warning to Rashid Bey we had put down to a petty desire for revenge, to pay us out for his discharge. Though Biddy had never felt sure of his new employer's German origin, and though she had qualms at the side of the party, following or arriving before us on our pilgrimage through the desert and up the Nile, she had never associated their possible designs with Rashid Bey's grudge against us. Yet how obvious that Better should take advantage of it for his client's sake, if those two men were what she sometimes feared. 
Bridget had never spoken out to Monny what was in her mind about Esme O'Brien. She had known that Monny would laugh, and perhaps say, What fun! For the girl had invited Biddy to Egypt because she attracted adventures, and because Monny badly needed a few, her life having been, up to the date of starting, a kind of fruit and flower piece in a neat frame. Now, perhaps, Monny wouldn't laugh, but it was not the time to speak of new dangers. Well, if your husband thinks that creature's like better and his Germans are going to help him stop us from getting out or taking you out, he's wrong, said Monny stoutly. Better's the most sickening coward, as Rachel guessed and I have reason to remember. But I'm glad we know what we have to expect, aren't you, Biddy? It was hard to answer, because the girl was, in reality, so far from knowing what she might have to expect. Bridget tried to smile her reply as Monny began to tell Mabel something of their plan about the friends ready to rally round them, once they were in the carriage waiting outside the gate, and about the motor-coat and veiled hood which had been brought for Mabel to put on, at a safe distance from the house. "'You'll have to start in your own things,' the girl was saying. "'Otherwise your servants would think it odd. Ring now, dear, for your woman, and have her give you your habara and yashmuk.' "'There are no bells,' said Mabela Hanem, with her soft air of obstinate hopelessness. When I want Yina, if she isn't in the room, I clap my hands as hard as I can. But I can tell you it is no use. It is too late. As she spoke, throwing up her arms and letting them fall with a gesture of hapless despair, both Bridget and Monny felt that Islam had already raised a barrier between them and this delicate creature it had taken into its keeping. In the white wool robe she wore, the kind of loose dressing-gown affected by Turkish women, she looked more like a Circassian than an American girl. Always she had seemed to her would-be rescuers a charming doll, a feminine thing of exactly the type which would appeal to a Turk, weary of dark beauties. Her hair was so very golden, her eyes so very big, and blue, her lashes so very black, her mouth so very red and small, but now she had become an odalisque. Mabel's friends realized that she would do nothing to save herself. They must do all. Hesitating no longer, Monny struck her hands loudly together. Yina did not come. The girl clapped again, and yet again, till her palms smarted, but nothing happened. Yina is in it, whatever they mean to do, said Mabel. She's had her orders. Very well, then, Monny persisted, her eyes shining and her cheeks carnation. You must go without your wraps. Come along. Don't be frightened. Isn't it better to risk something to get away than to stay here all alone when we're gone? The pretty doll, with a little moan, gave herself up to her friends. Bridget, as well as Monny, realized that the moment had come. They must take her while she was in this mood. "'Let me go ahead,' said Monny, in a low, firm voice. "'You know why.' Bridget did know why. Monny had Anthony's Browning, and she alone understood the use of it. Yes, she must lead the way, yet Bridget longed to fling herself in front, to make of her body a shield for the tall white girl she had so loved and admired. Biddy put Mabel in front of her, and behind Monny, keeping her between them with two cold but determined little hands on the shrinking shoulders, and so pushing her along, protected front and rear, in the piteous procession. Of course, if the door leading toward the house entrance had been locked on the outside, there would have been the end of the endeavor, for the moment, but it opened to Monty's hand, and all three went on unchecked, until they came to the vestibule, where on the wall-bench they had seen the Koran of the fat negro, awaiting his return. They had come tiptoeing, and had made no more sound than prowling kittens. Yet he sat there, facing the door, no longer heavy-lidded, a black mountain of lazy flesh, but alert, beady-eyed, as if he had been counting the minutes. 
As they swept through the doorway, hoping to surprise him, the eunuch jumped to his feet as lightly as a man of half his weight, and smiling with pleasure in the excitement of an event to break monotony, he blocked with his great bulk the aperture between wall and projecting screen. No wonder they had not needed to lock doors with this giant for a jailer, and a big Sudanese knife conspicuously showing in a belt under his open galabia. Rashid had perhaps wanted the white mouse in his trap to feel the thrill of hope, and then the shock of disappointment. He had counted completely on the guardian of his harem, but, though he had chosen an American wife, he had not counted on the courage of another type of American girl. The knife looked terrible, but it was sheathed and tucked into a belt. Anthony's browning was in Monty's hand, and hidden only under her serge coat. Out it came with a warning click of the trigger, and with an astonished, frightened gurgle in his throat, the negro involuntarily fell back. Run, Monty breathed, prisoning him where he stood with the little bright eye of the browning cocked up at his face. She had to be obeyed then, and they ran, the two of them, flashing past the black man, touching his clothes as they squeezed by, yet he dared not put out a detaining hand. When they were away, safe or not, she could not tell, Monny still kept the pistol in position, but began slowly to turn, that she too might pass the dragon, holding him at her mercy till the end. Not a word of Arabic could she recall, but the browning spoke for her, a language understood without the trouble of learning by all the sons of Adam. When she had backed through the doorway, the girl still faced toward the inner vestibule, and it was well she did, for scarcely was she out of his sight before the black giant was after her, taking the chance that she would have turned to run. But there was the resolute young face, with eyes defying his, and there was the weapon ready to blow out such brains as he had, if the hand on the knife moved. Again he fell back, and then Monny did run, making the best use she had ever made of those long limbs which gave her the air of a young Diana. She ran until she had caught up with the other two, flying toward the distant gate, for something told her that the negro would have hurried to tell his master of the trick the woman had played, preferring the lash on his back, perhaps, to a bullet through his head. She was right, no doubt, to trust her instinct, for the eunuch did not pursue, though his tale of failure was not needed. Rashid Bey had been watching from the window of the Selimlik, as Mabel, his wife, had watched when he received visitors. He did not wait for the negro's warning, but dashed out of the house, followed and then passed by several long-robed men in Arab dress. The faces of these were almost hidden by the loose hoods which desert men pull over their heads in a high wind, but had they been uncovered the women would not have seen them. The thing was to escape, not to take note of the pursuers, and it was only Biddy, looking over her shoulder for Monny, who even saw that they were followed. She cried out to her friend to hurry, that someone was coming, that they must get to the gate or all would be ended. Then, feeling Mabel falter, she held her the more tightly and ran the faster. Rashid and his companions were shouting, not to the women, but to the gatekeeper, and as the master's furious voice rang out, just in front of the fugitive, all three together now, appeared the big form of the man at the gate. Monny did not know what to do, for, in whichever direction she faced with the browning, she could be captured from the other. She might kill the negro, and then turn to keep the pursuers back, but the thought of killing a man sickened her. She had meant only to threaten not to take life. Suddenly she felt afraid of the browning. She hesitated, in a wild second of confusion, hating herself for failing her friends, yet unable to decide or act. But hardly had the gatekeeper sprung in sight than he went down, flat on his face, struck in the back of the neck by the shabby fellow who had driven their carriage. "'Go on,' the dirty-faced Arab said in French. 
There's someone else to drive you. I'll follow. I'm armed. The three sped by him, as he stood aside to let them pass, showing to Monty a pistol which matched the one he had lent her. This consoled the girl in obeying, for as Antoon had trusted her courage in this adventure, so did she trust his, and his strength and wit against four men or four dozen men, if need were. There was the waiting Arabia, and there on the box was a much cleaner, more self-respecting Arab to drive it than the soiled figure which had left the horses and stayed in the garden. Afterwards they learned that the new man was the sister's cousin's uncle of the Haji's café acquaintance. He had been engaged to stroll past in the road, stop, speak, offer the gatekeeper a cigarette, drift into conversation, and be ready to jump onto the box seat the instant Antun left it. His instructions included the furious driving with the three ladies, once they had all bundled into the Arabia, to the temple of Mut. Rashid Bey had every right, according to his own point of view, to resent the kidnapping of his wife, and to get her back in any way he could, even if blood had to be spilt. But his companions, they who were muffled in the cloaks and hoods to save their faces from the sharp wind, had perhaps not the same right or interest. In any case, when they saw that the woman had a man, or men, to help them, and that so helped they had passed from the privacy of the garden to the publicity of the road, the three fell back. Publicity, it may be, did not please them, or else, thinking to have only women to deal with, they were not armed and did not like the look of the pistol. Rashid, evidently no coward, or past feeling fear in the rage at the failure of his counterplot, ran on, wheezing slightly, he was fat for his age, toward the erect Arab and the prostrate negro. "'Beast! Devil!' he panted breathlessly, and cried out other words of evil import in both Turkish and Arabic, threatening the silent man of the pistol with death and things even worse. But before he had gone far, the hooded men caught up with him, and surrounding urged him back. What they said Anthony could not hear, or what he said in return, but he thought they were proposing some plan which appealed to Rashid's reason, for he showed signs of yielding. There was now no longer anything to detain the protector of the ladies, for by this time he hoped and believed that their arbia must be far on its way toward the temple of Mut, the meeting-place agreed upon. Accordingly he stepped over the unconscious gatekeeper, who lay with his nose in the grass, and backed calmly out of the garden. Not far off, an arabia was crawling along the road, so slowly that one might have thought the driver half asleep. But this supposition would have done him an injustice. Dusk had fallen now, the purple dusk which drops like a curtain just after the pageant of sunset is finished, yet the driver was wide awake enough to pierce the purple with a pair of sharp eyes, and recognize a figure expected. He whipped up his horse, and the dirty Arab running to meet it, in a few seconds the latter was on the box beside the coachman. Then the Arabia turned, and dashed wildly off according to the custom of Arabias, back in the direction whence it had been crawling. Two dark-faced men in the vehicle talked rapidly in low voices, speaking the language not only of the country, but the patois of Luxor itself. "'Your brother passed you in his Arabia?' "'Yes, Haji, he passed with the three European ladies you told me had been in secret to visit their friend.' Then Anthony knew that Bridget and Monny had been able already to carry out their plan of wrapping Mabella Hanim in one of their own cloaks. This was well, and would save gossip, if the occupants of the Arabia were stared at by passers-by. And at the temple also it would be well, for if possible the set were to know nothing, now or later, of the adventure. But though Anthony was glad of the news he had got from this Arab ordered to meet him at the gate, he did not settle down comfortably and say to himself, Thank goodness the thing is over. 
Those men back there in the garden would not so easily have persuaded Rashid Bey to let his wife go unpursued if they had not offered some alternative plan that could be carried out quickly. Still, so far so good. Bridget and Monny had won out and secured the prize, as Anthony had prophesied that they would do. They were on their way to the temple, where I would be with the comfortable, commonplace crowd from the enchantress Isis, and where the American consul and his wife would just happen also to be wandering. Instead of driving straight there himself, Anthony went with a friend to an obscure, mud-built house in the village. When he came out of that house, his brown-stained face was no longer disfigured with dirt. It was immaculate, as noble as the proudest Haji's face should be, and above it was wound the green turban. Ahmed Atun Effendi's own dignified, old-fashioned robes of the Egyptian gentleman flowed around his tall figure, when once more he took his place in the waiting Arabia, this time not on the box seat, and drove off at a more furious speed than ever toward the temple of Mut. End of chapter 22